So it's a real uh, privilege to be here. And uh, I also served as the co-chair of the LRF Symposium with Dr. Morton uh, Coleman and Dr. Emmanuel Zuka with the IELSG uh, this year. And it was really a great meeting. And part of why I can stand up here and do this now is because of what we did there. These are disclosures. I may talk about some off-label things. And we did a review uh, from the National Cancer Database, and I think uh, when we all talk about what are the real numbers, uh, this was 600,000 patients, and this is the best prevalence data, I think, in the United States at least. Marginal zone represents 8.3% of lymphomas, and if you look at uh, follicular lymphomas, uh, you know, only about twice that. If you go to the WHO classification, it all looks kind of simple, doesn't it? We got three different things. It's a little tougher than diffuse large B-cell lymphoma because we got three of them, not one, and some other things, and you can argue how many large cell lymphomas we really have now, too. It's more than that. But then Jim Sirhan was involved in this paper, and I think this is the best prevalence data. Uh, so this was in CA for cancer, and the prevalence data was 7%. But then look at the breakdown. And so the breakdown really starts to tell us what the reality of the day is. And the reality of the day is that 60% of the patients have extranodal marginal zone lymphoma. So what does that mean? So this disease is, I think, a very complex disease with multiple options. And the majority of patients live a long time. And so what I've decided to do in this discussion is to bring up six different points for you uh, in the arguments and make a conclusion in the end. So there are different disease manifestations versus uh, follicular lymphoma. And if you look at the 60% of marginal zone lymphomas, which are extranodal, you can see they're all over the place. And why there are these specific tropisms, this group that we had assembled international experts, really isn't terribly clear, interestingly. There's different biology, and there are different transformation rates. So biology I'm not going to talk a lot about. Mort and I talked about it on the bus coming home last night. But the, the notch signaling pathway plays a major role here that really doesn't fall out in follicular lymphoma. And then if you look at transformation rates, this was the largest paper that's out there from Memorial Sloan Kettering Group. It's been published in 2015 and then in 2017, looking at almost 500 patients. And the transformation rate was 1.6%. Well, you kind of heard about transformation uh, earlier in the other presentations. We published this paper in 2013, and before this time period in the pre-rituximab era, the transformation rate, no matter what paper you looked at, was 3% per year. And we suggested that it was really down to 2%, and that doesn't sound like a big deal, but if people are living 20 years, all of a sudden that, that becomes a real number. Then there are different treatments and outcomes from standard treatments. And just like our other, our other lymphomas, there are all kinds of things, but we've also got antibiotics here. We've got some other uh, things going on. And this is a, uh, table, a, a graph I put together for a paper uh, for Gita. 
And uh, the, uh, we've heard about nitrogen mustard. I wasn't born yet, but I was born in 1953. That's another disclosure for the morning. And uh, when methotrexate started, maybe that's how I got M for a middle initial in retrospect. But anyway, lots of things going on, lots of really fascinating things. So how does this marginal zone going to fit fitting into all of this? Radiation therapy plays a real role in this disease, as does surgery. And so this was, the, again, the uh, different sites from the memorial data. And there are a couple of really interesting observations. They did a bunch, the patients were managed in different ways and so forth, but the CR rate was 88%. The disease-specific death was 2% at 10 years. I'll come back to why I think that's important. And the median relapse-free survival was 11.9 years. Well, you saw the Sarkozy paper today, and I think this is the, I, I love this paper as part of it, but I think this is really a cool natural history paper. And we looked at the influence both of uh, American red wine and French red wine, and there were no differences in the populations. And uh, the, uh, of those, uh, so 80% of people are alive at, at 10 years. And 56% of those cases, as Carla alluded to, uh, are, are related to lymphoma, and half of those are transformation. So if we're going to think about this disease, marginal zone lymphoma, and try to make a difference, I think we really, you know, those things have to be thought about in the short and long term. Interesting, in, in their paper, only six patients died of marginal zone lymphoma. Now, we can't see that about follicular lymphoma. The staging systems, uh, the nemesis of uh, everybody in the room, especially those who see lots of different diseases. Uh, we have the flippy for uh, follicular lymphoma. Uh, then we've developed uh, the multi-PI, and we have just submitted a uh, abstract that'll be at ASH on the revised multi-PI with uh, our MER with uh, Isidore Lassus and uh, with the IELSG uh, proposing an even new modification. Uh, we looked at a, the different uh, IPI, FLIPI, multi-PI distributions and uh, in the different subsets of marginal zone lymphoma, and I'm not going to go through all the details here, but the C statistic actually favored the multi-PI uh, in the paper that we just had come out. You've also heard uh, talk about the EFS-12. Uh, Carla Casulo did incredible work there. We did work in the, in, in the uh, MER. And uh, we've also reported in this particular paper that uh, the EFS-12 uh, is important. So that's no progression, no death from any cause, or no unplanned treatments. And then they have a similar mortality to the normal US population. And in the lower left-hand curve, uh, survival curve, that's, uh, those are the results of those who fail EFS 24 relative to the normal population, which is in red. And again, we have the, our proposed other classification, uh, be it ASH. The whole staging, and I'm glad Bruce is here because um, he'll help answer questions. And believe it or not, when we had the, the LRF-IELSG meeting, and we had drug companies in the room also. It was really neat. It was the first time we did took that direction, but there's a lot of interchange. And as a matter of fact, a lot of marginal zone lymphoma patients aren't even eligible 
for certain low-grade lymphoma protocols, in part because there's not this agreement on splenomegaly. So the splenic marginal zones get excluded in different trials. And if you go back home and go through your uh, protocol books or get on, get on electronically and look, uh, you'll start to appreciate it. Interesting, uh, in uh, the 2014 paper, first authored by Bruce, our recommendation is to use a cutoff for splenomegaly of more than 13. I just sat at the ECOG Akron meeting, and there's a trial that's been approved in, in, by the NCI, and that, that cutoff is 15 sonometers. So there really isn't universal agreement here, and how in the world we get to these different numbers is rather fascinating. But we've really got to clean some of this up. Well, what about outcomes? So we looked at outcomes of our in in that uh, the, the the Sean Tracy paper, and you can see event-free survival on the left and overall survival on the right, and you can see some differences there. So I won't go through the details, but there's some reasonable separation there. So all marginal zone lymphomas aren't alike. Now there's real heterogeneity in treatment here and so forth. But I think that's a rather fascinating uh, overview. So what about some other sites? So salivary gland and parotid gland, a very common presentation. This was a paper uh, with, the, in, with the IELSG, 138 cases. Uh, we provided 89 cases out of the male lymphoma database. And the 59% uh, uh, were localized, 78% in the parotid gland. And the median overall survival was 18.3 years. Median progression-free survival, 9.3 years. Patients who uh, were treated in all kinds of different ways. Interestingly, if you, uh, if you had Sjogren's disease, you did better. This shows you the different kind of treatment, uh, different therapeutic interventions. So sometimes the surgeons see them first. Some patients got chemo. Some got uh, rituximab alone. And it's a real gamish. How many in the room have seen dural marginal zone lymphoma? Anybody? There's very good. So the, this is really a different disease, and you can see the uptake here on this. Uh, and uh, again, the memorial group has uh, led the way. They uh, published a paper on 26 cases. The three-year progression-free survival is 89%. And they were treated differently. So some got RT, some got whole brain RT rather than focal. Some got chemotherapy alone. Some got both. And then in a larger uh, review of 88 cases in the literature, along with three others, so 91 cases, 70% had surgery, then some RT, then some chemo. And so again, uh, very, not the kind of approaches that we think about when we think of follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Well, what about thyroid lymphoma? Thyroid lymphoma, again, kind of depends upon who saw you. Uh, Surgery is very common, uh, surgical extirpation rather than biopsy and then, and then proceed. Uh, and then maybe radiation therapy and maybe uh, immunochemotherapy. What about colon rectum? Uh, interestingly, uh, the small bowel, uh, 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 in the small bowel, a third of uh, small bowel lymphomas are uh, malt lymphomas. I thought that was kind of interesting and higher than I thought. Uh, and then how to treat them. If you go through 51 patients, this is the largest paper, 49% uh, were resected, and you can resect these alone. Uh, radiation therapy, 23%, 8% chemo, 10% were observed.
What about bladder? Uh, this is a nice cystoscopy picture, and you can appreciate thickening of the bladder wall with the red arrow sign of the radiologist. And uh, interesting, in the, the most of the uh, primary lymphomas of the bladder and in a couple different series, they happen to be malt more than not malt. And then what about breast? It's interesting, there's a paper uh, by Brian Link and his colleagues at Iowa on the rising incidence over the past several decades of malt lymphoma of the breast. RT is the preferred first line approach when you look at the uh, SEER database. And uh, the, uh, this was a uh, paper from the IELSG, uh, most managed with RT initially, uh, three-year progression-free survival of 17% and 56% at five years. Interestingly, the MD Anderson uh, group then, then looked, reported 11 cases, uh, stage one disease in 73%. 73% were treated with initial radiation therapy. Uh, six uh, of the patients that progressed after initial therapy, five of the six patients were treated with single agent rituximab, responded, and did not relapse. What about lung? There are 205 cases in this series, uh, again with the IELSG, we contributed about 100 cases, and 86% had limited stage 1 to 2 disease, 62% got systemic therapy, 63 or 30% got surgery, most of those uh, presented uh, and to the, uh, to the surgeons, interestingly, a diagnosis wasn't established, and then there was surgical extirpation of the lesion characteristically. Those patients did a little better from a progression-free survival. And the, uh, looking at the PFS curve, it showed a trend in improvement of the immunochemotherapy, but again, there's a, there's a real heterogeneous approach to this very uncommon disease. What about gastric lymphoma that's malt or marginal zone? I'm not going to go through all the details of this. I refer you to the NCCN guideline uh, 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 book. I, th I think it's it guidelines. Uh, I think they're, they're very reasonably articulated. We just re-reviewed those. And, uh, uh, but it's complicated. And it's complicated. There's more. There's less of this around than there used to be. More patients are being are, have already been on some antibiotic therapy or other PPIs, uh, but uh, again, the approach is is either triple or quadruple therapy up front. And there are 2017 guidelines which are even a little different than articulated in this particular paper. So lastly, I want to talk about what, what are the treatment outcomes. You've heard of some of these regimens, or these, these trials already this morning, but I'll give you the, the, the take on marginal zone lymphoma. This is the RESORT trial, uh, chaired by Brad Call, and you saw this already. If you, it, it, these are the, this, this, this is the follicular lymphoma population. There weren't differences. But Michael Williams then published the uh, observation out of this uh, and what happened to the marginal zone lymphoma patients. And as you can see, there's a rather significant difference there in the progression-free survival. Now, the numbers of patients aren't huge here, but uh, this, these were randomized, and this is how it fell out. And this was the treatment failure curve also. And so with maintenance rituximab and marginal zone lymphoma, there's a difference in progression-free survival. 
and I'm not sure we all would have predicted that before we saw this. And then what about the Augment trial? You've heard of all the stories here from uh, uh, previous speakers, but, now, but you really didn't hear the marginal zone story, so you'll know this trial well when you leave today. Uh, 63 cases, or 18% had marginal zone lymphoma, and when you looked at the marginal zone data, look at the median progression-free survival. With R2, 20.2 months, but with placebo and, 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 and uh, rituximab, 25.2. So you did better if you got placebo. And this was the overall survival curve. There were differences there that uh, uh, there's a trend there uh, that's very interesting uh, with the placebo rituximab in red. Then you heard the follicular lymphoma argument, and so I'm not going to go through that, 39.4 versus 13.9, and these were the curves that you have seen. Lastly, we heard about the PIK3 inhibitors, uh, you know, really fascinating story, really interesting. The problem I had is these as these trials were all coming out and being reported, you got follicular lymphoma, then you got, quote, other. And as I hope I've been able to articulate a little bit, I'm not sure what kind of other marginal zones are even in these, and I think the natural history of some of the subsets are different. What about CAR T cells? Well, it's not approved for marginal zone. Uh, it, it, it's, it, 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 it's not approved for uh, uh, marginal zone lymphoma transformation to diffuse large B cell lymphoma. So, in summary, I think there are few things in common. Uh, I think, I hope that I've been able to articulate in these six different categories the differences for you. I think, in summary, that splenic nodal and extranodal marginal zone lymphomas, they, they have a different natural history and disease manifestations, and the different disease manifestations and natural history of the marginal zone, the extranodal subsets are, are very different. The rates of transformation are different. Uh, I, I think that's really interesting. The treatments include surgery, radiation, triple, or, triple oral therapy in marginal zone, and are very effective. Maintenance for tuximabs active in marginal zone, not in follicular, and the outcomes in randomized clinical trials were different. So should uh, the treatment of marginal zone lymphoma be different from follicular lymphoma and how we consider it? And I would argue how we in the future can go on and study these disease in clinical trials should be different and they should not just be lumped in with follicular lymphoma. So with that, I really want to thank uh, Mort, who's been really wonderful to work with this last year, and uh, John and the organized, organizing committee and uh, the, uh, everyone else. Thank you so much.